Hey gang, welcome to the Your Basket is Empty pod, a space where I sit down with agencies, brands, and original e-com thinkers to discuss their journey, practical advice, and how they're navigating the current digital landscape. Your Basket is Empty is also a bi-monthly industry newsletter that covers the most interesting e-com and direct consumer news, interviews with original e-com thinkers, a jobs board, an event listing section, and a playlist. Go check that out at yourbasketisempty.com. On this episode, we are discussing the e-commerce platform arms race with Rick Watson, e-commerce strategy consultant and LinkedIn e-commerce influencer, I think it would be fair to say. We discuss personal branding on LinkedIn, the pros and cons of Gartner's Madrid Quadrant, his role at the Mark Alliance and how they fit into the ecosystem, the Shopify versus commerce tools debate, the rise and fall of Magento and who will be the dominant platform in 10 years time. Before we get into it, this episode is brought to you by my good friends at OmniSend. You might have heard things like email marketing is expensive, has low ROI, or it's too complicated. Now, what if I told you these are all myths? In reality, email marketing can be affordable, bring in a great return on investment, and is incredibly straightforward. Or at least, that's all true if you used OmniSend, the email marketing and SMS platform used by more than 100,000 e-commerce brands to attract, convert, and keep new customers. OmniSend is intuitive, packed with pre-built templates and automation workflows, and guess what? It's 40% cheaper than the leading e-commerce marketing platforms. Worried about ROI? In 2022, OmniSend's merchants enjoyed a staggering average return on investment of $72 per every dollar spent, which is double the industry average of $36. And if you ever need help, get your questions answered in under three minutes by an award-winning support team that's available 24-7 even during busy days like Black Friday and Christmas. So don't let Miss hold you back. Experience email marketing that really sells with OmniSend. Find out more at getomnisend.com slash your basket is empty and give your e-commerce brand the boost it deserves. Rick, welcome to the pod. How are you and where are you? Thanks a lot. Uh, I am in New York City. Nice. Whereabouts? Uh, I'm in the Upper West Side and it's a rainy day here. Upper West Side. Is that near the High Line? High Line is further downtown. High Line is on the West Side, just not the Upper West Side. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, so I'm I'm geographically at least on the the, the right seaboard. You're thinking about it the right way. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. So uh, you cover a lot of subjects. But for this particular conversation, I wanted to focus on platforms. I've sort of coined it the e-com platform arms race, which might be a little bit too um, uh, warlike, but you know, maybe some would, would, would call it that. Um, and we're going to get into platforms in a little bit, but I want to start with a little bit of background. So can you give me a bit of background on how you got to where you are now? Yeah, um, kind of as I was coming up, I never thought, about e-commerce too much because it wasn't really a, a thing. I'm more on the technology and software development side. So I have a master's in electrical engineering. And my first job out of school, I happened to work at a company called Stingray Software, which was founded by a guy, Scott Wingo, who would later go on to found Channel Advisor, which turned out to be one of the more impactful e-commerce software companies in the generation from a market, particularly from a marketplace point of view, because they were one of the first players that had the idea that big companies were going to sell on online marketplaces. And they had that idea in, in 99. So it's, uh, they got a pretty good head start. There were a lot of, there were a lot of com- competitors back then. So I joined them at the end of 99 as a software engineer and I spent 10 years there. So I got to see the rise of eBay and Amazon worked with hundreds, not thousands of sellers during that time and kind of got to see the flattening out, not necessarily the total decline of eBay, but like there's a limit to what eBay can do. And I think eBay kind of tried a whole bunch of things that never worked 
and eBay is still today kind of like what it was before. It's not really changed that much. Uh, meanwhile, Amazon has become everything else. And so that that has been an interesting transition. And so kind of moving from there, I moved to uh, a retailer, I moved to New York City in 2011 to become the general manager for barnesandnoble.com's third-party marketplace. So I actually helped mm-hmm. them launch that. Then I ran an e-commerce software company in New York City that was venture back called Merchantry, which definitely a turnaround kind of uh, opportunity. So a lot of stress, but a lot, of, also a lot of learning. I ended up selling the business to a larger startup at, in 2015. And then I worked for a cross-border company. Pitney Bowes had just acquired Border Free, which was one of the leaders in the cross-border software space. Now they're owned by Globally because wow. Pitney Bowes sold it. But uh, I, I worked for, for three years. I was head of product there. So an interesting thing about me is like I've been as, as deep as you can go on the technology side. And I've also been at software companies and retailers in various leadership positions. So I've seen the same problems from different points of view. And so I think that's one of the things that gives me, I, I think, a unique perspective on the space. And that's why I enjoy it, because it keeps changing. You, you touch on so much interesting stuff that I want to unpack in this conversation. But but I, I'm curious, just before we get into it, how did you kind of find your, uh, I don't want to call it personal branding voice, but you, you've got a very strong personal brand. And um, I kind of knew bits of your journey, but I didn't know it. And I didn't understand how technical you, you were, which is really interesting and surprising to me. And so I'm curious then, how, how did you sort of mold into this kind of authority? And not just from a technical perspective, your, your content's broad, right? Like I think you, 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 you talk very confidently about the way in which brands or technology companies from the e-com space can think about their strategy, right? Like whether that's going to IPO or something like that. Is that something that you just picked up along the way and thought, hey, I'm going to start talking about this? Was there a gap? How did you enter that space? Early on in my life, I, I've always enjoyed kind of speaking and writing and that, that including like going back to high school and college. Um, and I would say during the 2000s, I had a blog on and off, but it was, it was like anyone who works at another company. It's not like, it's not essential to your job. And so maybe you might blog once a year, you know, <laughs> like a month or something, but it's, there's, there's no reason for you to do it other than it's sort of like your personal interest if you have free time. And so I think what, what hit me when I, so at the end of 2018, I got laid off by Pitney Bowes and I was trying to figure out like, what do I want to do next? I decided to start my own consulting firm because I thought, uh, this was early 2019 now, like February 2019 is when I started the business. And I was trying to figure out uh, e-commerce is still growing. A lot of big companies need help. And I have a lot of experience that I think could be useful, but I don't necessarily know how I can help people yet. Um, and, which which I have since figured out, but I certainly did not know that then, um, to at least to some extent. And I'm always changing things. But I, I would say my key insight to developing the brand was that if I don't get good at marketing and be able to source my own business, the business yep. is going to die. It's not going to be big yep. enough for me to sustain this long term because I'm going to constantly be asking for business for other people who are good at marketing. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, I need to be able to source my own business. The only way I'm going to source my own business if I understand marketing. And so to do that, like really the first thing I did is I just started blogging like twice a week. And I, I just started doing that. Like anyone who also starts a blog, no traffic. And this is after, <laughs> you know, whatever, several months, 
And I started posting that on LinkedIn. And probably after a month or so, I started posting on LinkedIn and Twitter. Like everything I'd write, I would just post on LinkedIn and Twitter. Yep. And you know, even after watching it a month, I could see that LinkedIn was the 90-10. And so I'm like, okay, this is the thing that is working. And so really, I would say for the past, then probably about for the next year and a half, I probably posted on LinkedIn twice a day. I, I just really saw that this could be something and there weren't a lot of people doing what I thought could be done. I would say the only person that I saw at the time was like Britain Ladd at the time doing something that were like, there are some people, like very few people who have figured out like this is a way to get your voice out there. And everyone already knew that you had to have a LinkedIn profile to be in business. And like all my customers are in business. So they're here. Like, why would I go anywhere else? You know, Google, there's a lot of people on Google, but there's also a lot of people I don't care about on Google. Yeah. Totally. Um, and, and so for LinkedIn, it was just such a focusing agent. And when you post on LinkedIn for a year, you're going to get five views, 10 views, 15 views for months and months and months and months. And, and that's just the way it is. And so mm. while no one cares about you and doesn't even know you're there, you can afford to... Basically, you're practicing. Every day, you're practicing. Yeah. And I think as part of that, I started to develop a voice where, in particular, one of the things I saw is that I could say things that other people couldn't say because I was independent. I wasn't an agency, a Shopify agency. I wasn't a vendor who had a particular point of view. And so it kind of developed in this point where I felt comfortable saying what was on my mind. And if it was a topic that I didn't know about, then I felt comfortable just asking questions about it. Yep. And yep. so that's kind of yep. my approach. Like I don't have to be an authority on every single thing, but to the extent that I want to learn more, then I at least try to do some thought experiments so that I can learn something. And then perhaps my audience will fill in areas that I, I didn't know. And of course, at the beginning, you don't have that. You don't have anything. But that's how it's developed. It's really the following that it developed has been, I won't say completely accidental because it's been very purposeful. But I certainly never thought it would get to the number of followers I have right now. It was interesting because I was contemplating and we have sort of bit into it. I was contemplating focusing this entire conversation on building a personal brand on LinkedIn because I think uh, you, from my perspective, are one of few original voices. I think that people try and emulate what you've discussed and get a personal branding guru to help them do that. And to me, everything just becomes ubiquitous and it becomes like total shit if I'm honest. Whereas I think keeping that authenticity is hard and it's, it, yeah, I, I, I like that idea of like you test and you learn and then you just keep going at it, right? It's like a bit of a war of attrition. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. And I consider it very much like being, being healthy. Everyone knows how to be healthy. No one wants to be healthy. Like in terms of actually doing it, which is like, okay, eat more fruits and vegetables and work out. Like 99.9% .9 of people know that, but like almost no one does it. And so I think from LinkedIn, when I tell people I post on LinkedIn every day, we're like, how do you do that? I'm like, you just, you just, you just do it like your life depends on it. And that's how I yeah, do yeah. it. Discipline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really the only answer, but it's not an easy, it's a hard answer because like, do you schedule your posts? Do you, does someone else write them for you? Like the answer is no to all those things for me. I literally just type in the box every morning. It's the most boring answer that you would ever hear. But 
I, it, it's the one, it's the one thing I cannot outsource. I, I think my LinkedIn is actually the one thing I can't outsource. I could outsource a lot of other things, but not my LinkedIn. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I would say as a consumer of a lot of LinkedIn content, it's very obvious that you don't and therefore it increases the authority and the originality, which therefore makes it better content. I think that, so, so there is an interesting concept there. Anyway, I want to bring it back to the platform arms race. I want to kick off the conversation with, uh, well, kick off that part of the conversation with um, something that came out recently uh, and something you talked about, something I talked about. Uh, the Gartner's Magic Quadrant. So my observation, and I'd love to get your perspective, is that it serves the platforms, not the brands necessarily. But for my own research, the market did not agree with me necessarily. <laughs> what, what, do, what do you mean the market didn't agree with you? The, the feedback I got was that people do use it. And uh, I suppose it's similar to you. I, I very much pose questions on there. Like, I, I don't fucking know. I'll just put it out there and say like, hey, this is my take. But, you know, people that are smarter than me challenge me on it, right? And I got challenged, which was, which was totally fine. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious what your take is. Do you think it's useful? Yeah, look, I, um, I think it's not an assessment tool, almost. I think what it has become for brands, like let's forget about what it is for platforms. It's obvious what it is for platforms. I, for brands, particularly for brands, I would say for any brand that's above a certain size, they tend to be more risk averse than not. Let's say, particularly once you cross about $500 million, you start to be more corporate. There is more bosses. There's more, there's a board. There's your boss. You have a boss's boss's boss, right? Whereas if you're in a $50 million company, that doesn't exist. Like who the hell cares about your Gartner quadrant if you can't, you know, if you're not growing fast enough, it, do, it doesn't matter. But your boss's boss probably cares about it. And the board and the investors probably definitely care about it. And so what I think the core of what it is useful for right now, it's when you're putting together a short list, make sure you're not forgetting someone. That's it. That is end of end of discussion. I don't think people use it to evaluate the platforms per se, except in like very broad strokes. They're still going to talk to all the people. But my my sense is they have one name that they're already invested in. Like, I don't know, if you've been on Oracle for 10 years, you're probably going to go talk to them or your SI who knows Oracle, right? There's probably someone who seems obvious you should take, you should have a conversation with. And then there's like, usually there's another spot you're trying to fill in your RFP or, or like your short list, maybe a, a spot or two. And to me, that's the most useful purpose for a Gartner is to like, it is an outs, you know, you could argue whether it's biased or not. I think I don't think there's anything as unbiased sure. yeah. advice, even including for me. The most useful is to to get an a perspective that is, you know, not funded directly by an SI, maybe indirectly, or funded mm-hmm. directly by a platform, maybe indirectly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. um, you know, you're not listening directly to the vendor you know for it there. And I think look, I think it's a hard job. And so like any, anyone, I, I can be, it's easy for me and ever, anyone to be critical of it as the end all be all because it's an impossible job, period, because every company is in a different situation. And so I'm, I'm sympathetic to the task at hand. I also think that commerce has become so nuanced 
and the needs have become so different for the different segments now that it's hard mm-hmm. to have like a major quadrant, you know? And I think in 2005 that you could for e-commerce, but I think e-commerce is so fragmented now. Like, are you a small B2B company that wants something off the shelf? Are you a mid-market B2B company that wants something customized? Are you a enterprise? Like, and so like these different pockets, I think have a different, slightly different consideration set generally. Would you as a vendor platform, would you be worried that you're not in the quadrant then? Or it depends. And I suppose I'm talking about some of the, the I, I made comments uh, to the effect that like, I was surprised that Centra or Commerce Layer, somebody like that weren't in there because it felt like... I think they're too small. They're, they're too small. Like, it, it's just a size. Like, you have to have some number of employees, some number of agencies, some number of references, some number of revenue. I think to even just to get in the in the list. And so I think that's another reason why it's like, it's going after the mainstream, really. It, it can't go in every niche uh, use case, um, you know, from, from that point of view. Yeah, yeah, and I think yeah that, that that speaks to your comments around the fragmentation, which which is which is very obvious. The, the the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is something that you're involved in, and I think another, I would argue, maybe a uh, more uh, thoughtful authority in the in the in the space is the Mark Alliance, because I think it's it's newer, so they've been able to learn from the Magic Quadrant and you know all that sort of stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, so for the people that don't or the uninitiated don't know, what is the Mark Alliance? And I'm curious, how do you fit into the picture? What role, what role do you have in the Mark yeah, Alliance? Yeah, so, so the Mark Alliance is um, a nonprofit industry association. Uh, it was conceived of by Commerce Tools, uh, mm-hmm. as well as some of the founders were from agencies and vendors and partners kind of simultaneously. Uh, since then, it has kind of evolved from there, but it's essentially... It promotes a certain way of designing and building architecture that enables, you know, I would say broadly, innovation and flexibility is tends to be their goals. And you can have a lot of arguments around does it do that or not, and does it cost you know whatever whatever it is. But that's those are the goals of the organization, and I think um, it, it's it's an interesting organization. I think for a couple of reasons historically, especially for someone who's watched the space for like twenty years, you don't see independent organizations like this. Almost never. You really don't. You see a platform. You see a set of agencies. And you see a set of ISVs, and it's like the vent, like Shopify's app store. That's like a cla- like Magento's ecosystem. Like those, those are the classic ecosystems out here. I think what the Mock Alliance has been able to do is actually, I think, regardless, of, even if you think it's terrible, which I, I don't, I think it's quite unique in, historically in e-commerce, just from that point of view, and. You know, mock, um, you know, basically microservices, API first, composability, and headless are ways, you know, I'm, I'm of like two minds about those things because while I think every brand doesn't necessarily need everything in like such micro in- increments, I think there is a tremendous advantage for vendors and platforms that think this way. Because then it means that their services can be adopted in different ways for different use cases. 
And, and to me, that's the beauty of what Mock offers. Not necessarily that every single brand for every use case and every scenario needs to make 100 microservices. Like that's not, to me, even what anyone hardcore Mock is even uh, promoting. So that's, uh, to me, that's kind of one side. So it's, it's a very interesting approach. And I think it's, it's a reaction to, I would say mostly big platform it's like SAP, Oracle, IBM to me is the biggest reaction to that where okay, every platform over time needs to acquire these big components and they need to like try and bolt them together and that's how people need to buy software and so I think Mock to me is, is the biggest thing about Mock is it's a reaction to that historical trend and you even still see it today like this is what sap is you know still offering uh today and even salesforce like seems to every year or two acquire like another thing that it tries to like add into the you know to the mothership um my role in the mock alliance um so i don't have a like an operational role or anything in the mock alliance i'm an executive advisory board member i attend uh, board meetings every three months with other advisors um, I'm definitely, uh, I, I like to say I like to be a friend in, in every room. So in the mock Alliance, uh, I, it, it is certainly a, a very friendly, opening, open, uh, open, welcoming community. I would say in particular for larger organizations and more developer centric organizations as a rule, not necessarily, you know, exclusively. And I think the reason is a lot of CTOs are struggling with how to migrate legacy stacks, many of which are either custom that they've built themselves. I mean, I, I could just tell you story after story of company that in 2011, they decided like, are we going to, are we going to build? Or are we going to buy? And they looked around in 2011 and they were like, we don't like what's out there. And so they chose build and you you you're in agencies like once you start that path it's very hard to undo it and so 10 years later i think an, another thing that the mock alliance like if we're going to stick on the mock alliance for a second i think another thing the mock alliance believes is that commerce is commerce technology is basically a commodity there's so much commerce tech, and by that i mean it's not it's not that it's all the same i actually think it's differentiated but there's so much of it that you hardly need to build anything anymore and as a result what that does is elevate i would say it elevates the ecosystem and so the center of gravity i think has moved from the platform itself per se to the agencies and the isvs that sort of connection point as really the source of innovation because knowing that you can't it, it's very hard to get everything from one vendor the agency and the and the apps have to be working together particularly in innovative like new user flows and scenarios mm -hmm. and I, I think you'd see the most and you would probably agree you see the most change in front-end experiences whether it's mobile totally. social like yeah. all these things you see much less change you know, the closer you get to the ERP system, let's say that, yeah, 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 <laughs> and the yeah, and the yeah. WMS, like maybe those two yeah. things. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I haven't heard the mark explained in that way before, and I think that's quite a good explanation for anyone interested 
the innovation and the flexibility concept. I think it's probably easy to get wrapped up in the acronym a little bit yeah. and like yeah. think about things like composable and headless. Um, but yeah, I think that there is a underlying ethos there, which is about that innovation and flexibility, which yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think it's a it's it's an, it's it's interesting you say about the idea that it's a unique position within the market, and I do agree. Like an independent, sort of broadly independent, like body that sits within the ecosystem. They have a point of view, and they're you know you, everyone can see who's who's on the mock alliance and who's not, and so you know they have a they have a point of view. Totally. So, I mean, that does lead me to the next question, which is <laughs> slightly where the, the Mark Alliance will, will, will come up against the, probably I, I would argue the rest of the market, and that is that let's talk Shopify and commerce tools. So I think it's probably a bit reductive to suggest that it's like a two-horse race, two-horse arms race, if we're getting back to the topic of this conversation. Um, but I think, broadly speaking, we could agree that they are making the most noise in the market, or at least have the best marketing people, maybe that would be another way of looking at it. I, and then I think uh, both of them have great marketing, you know. Um, but what, what's your take on them? And I suppose I'm, I'm most curious about the idea, which I believe both anecdotally and I think what I'm seeing in the market is they're starting to converge and play in the same pool. Uh, what do you think about that? Is there going to be a winner or a loser? Is it good to have these two options? How do you think about it? Yeah. Look, I, I think it, it depends. Part of it depends on who you ask. So some some disclaimers up front. I'm probably the only person you'll find. It, it actually, if there are other people, I'd love to talk to you because I think you would also be an interesting conversation. Uh, I, I'm a Mock Alliance Advisory Board member. I'm also a certified Shopify consultant. And so that's <laughs> there's like almost no one who meets those criteria. Like find yeah. another person and then I invite them to your podcast and I'll I'll be yeah. on I'll be on with them. I'm gonna I'm gonna put the call out there. I I don't know anyone. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we can do that. For for me, I've always wanted to be welcome in every room. Um and, and that's that's part of why I think it's interesting. So look, I, I think it sort of depends if you're looking backwards looking or forwards looking. If you're looking backwards, almost no one who is an enterprise company would consider Shopify an enterprise solution. They just wouldn't. It's like, especially above $500 million. It's just not the market perception, right mm -hmm. or wrong. Um, forward looking, um, you know, backward looking, I think commerce tools would definitely say that it's we're designed to be an enterprise solution. We don't, you know, we care probably somewhat about the, you know, we care about the upper mid market. We probably don't care so much about the lower mid market and we care zero about SMBs. Mm -hmm. And if you ask Shopify, it's like almost exactly the opposite. Like mm -hmm. we care about entrepreneurs. We care mm -hmm. about SMBs. We care, you know, maybe slightly less about, they, they probably wouldn't say this out loud, but they probably care <laughs> slightly less about the upper mid market, even though that's the bulk of their GMV now, yeah. uh, or, yeah. you know, or, you know, the, the core middle market, which is their plus offering. And now they also, I think they would, they would say like, they care about all of these things, right? They wouldn't say they, they care yeah. about one less or, yeah. or more. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm yeah. just, uh, it's more for effect than anything. Um, the, I think going forward, and, and I think Shopify is like a very sneaky company. And because I think Toby, I have a lot of respect for Toby. And I think he doesn't, Shopify is not, 
doesn't think like a traditional company. And I think one of the reasons, I was actually just thinking about this recently. If you look at the, and I've seen this over my career at different times, these charts, I meant to pull it out. This is probably actually going to be a post. If you look at the Fortune 500, like every 10 years, and just like, who are the top 30 players? And just put that every five years and just track it. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's going to turn over like 80% over a 10-year period, something like this. I think that's Shopify's bet. Shopify's Mm -hmm. bet is, if you are Toby and you believe that you are building a 100-year company, it doesn't matter if I have an enterprise message. Because today's small players are going to be next year's big players. Mm. And if I'm patient mm. enough, I'm, it's not going to matter that if I have enterprise messaging or not, if I just keep slowly marching up, these people are going to be on Shopify as, and as long as I don't lose them, which is, which is a key point, and up for, I'm sure, a whole bunch of debate in the industry, I think that is Shopify's bet that they're not fully i don't think they advertise that fully but i think their approach makes it seem to me that's their kind of underlying assumption well i think you're right i reckon that a lot of this debate goes down into the factions that exist within the e-commerce community right and i think on both sides well on either side of the platform debate you've got the staunch supporters who have drunk the Kool-Aid, right? And that's all they'll ever drink, you know? Right. And then I think, I'd like to think people like you and me kind of sit in the middle. And, and I think that's an interesting concept that you've got. And I, I like to find, like, even when I worked at the Shopify agency, I was always critical of them, right? And I think that that's a healthy thing. It's right. healthy to be critical in, in, in a positive way. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I remember seeing a talk from the new CRO dude when he was in London and he talked about Shopify offering these three flavors. Your smart, your startup company, we got you. Your SMB, which you know, I don't know what the range on that is, but it's huge. We, you know, we got you, and now, and now we, you know, we're, we're, we're enterprise. We, we, we got you, and and I did think that was. I was like, hmm, that is quite powerful because they've already. It's if they were coming into the market and they were trying to attack all those at the at the same time, I'd be like, well, this is bullshit, man. Like you've got nobody. Whereas because they've grown and they're marching, as you say. I believed it and I was like, hmm, that's quite compelling to me as a brand and as someone who kind of right. sits in the, in the ecosystem somewhere. So yeah, I think that that is probably a reasonable uh, suggestion. You know, that, that kind of 10-year plan, that's kind of what they're going for. Um, yeah. But did you think that, so, the, 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 so the, the, I, I agree in terms of the perspectives, right, and the looking forward and the looking back, but I have you got examples because I have not f- I mean, I think if there are examples, maybe a little bit Salesforce is a good-ish use case where they looked downwards into the market and kind of got in there a bit. So there's, there, there is a, you know, there's a use case. Do you think commerce tools can effectively do that? They can go down market a little bit and do it well. Do I think they could? Sure, they could. I think they would need to partner and a lot more and be strong. I just don't think it's their DNA. I'm, I'm not sure if they have interest in doing it. It just doesn't seem to be... Um, because to go down market, you have to be very much want to be what they necessarily don't want to be. Like at least commerce tools itself. You know what I mean? I think what, like if I'm commerce tools, what I believe is that that's someone else's job in the mock alliance in, in the ecosystem, whether that is, and I think they probably believe that it belongs in the SIs and system integrators. Not necessarily, it's not the job of platform to 
be all the use cases in one place. I just think that's a it's it's a philosophical thing. Whereas I think Shopify, Toby has been very clear. Yeah, he talked about the three layers and market segments, but he's been clear about the three layers in terms of, um, I would say configuration versus coding. For the for the startups, he wants everything like you shouldn't have to configure it; you should just have to use it. Like, click a button. I have a store. I shouldn't have to do anything, right? In the next phase, I should be able to install. I should be able to install apps and configure them. But I shouldn't have to do anything else. I shouldn't have to do zero coding to be, you know, quote, in the middle of their offering. But then up there, they want you to have as much flexibility as you do in any ecosystem, any platform ecosystem. I, I, I believe that that's how Shopify sees that. And I think that that has changed in the past four years. I think four years ago, I don't think Shopify believed that. I think they believe that their job was to be the all-in-one platform. And if you if you want to leave our nest, then we don't care about you, like because we have an opinion about how our platform is built. And I think that I, I do think that changed over the past three four years. And I think at some point they got to the point where like how they thought about building their checkout was like. They couldn't accommodate all the use cases in house. They had to open up checkout extensions. They had to op- like, they had to add a headless framework, you know, and and their hosting infrastructure because they got too big for the number of use cases that were on the platform. So that brings you, and I want to start to round out the conversation, but I've got a couple of things I want to touch on. So, following on that track, there, like technology comes and goes, and you talk about the Fortune. Uh, 500 or the list, you know, the top 20 companies, and it sort of changes every 10 years. What is it, do you think about e-com platforms specifically, or technology companies, because you can talk to that more broadly? Why is it, do you think they go into these down phases? Is, is, it, is it bad management? Is it the funding structures that they typically exist within? Mm. Like Shopify seem to arguably be doing pretty well, right? They grow, 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 ultimately, right? With a few dips along the way, you know, based on market mm-hmm. forces. But, you know, I'm thinking about something like a Magento, right? Which was dominant and then it wasn't, you know, what's your take on why that happens? Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of reasons. Um, I think I think management is a key part of it. Um, and even like Toby has spoke about this recently on his all in YouTube, where he talked about like the principal agent problem, like where the founder of the business has a different point of view and incentives than the managers. And, you know, he's talked about it in terms of side quests and, and, and a lot of like a lot of things like this, where ultimately the manager is, is trying to build a certain point of view, which might be disconnected from what the users need. And you've seen this in Apple or like any like company over time, they go through these like Mm -hmm. growth phases and they're like, I would say neglect. And so I think the journey of Magento through eBay to eBay Enterprise to Adobe, you know, they lost something during Mm -hmm. like it's, it's very hard to ignore the fact that they lost something in that transition. And I think that was precipitated, like to me, a precipitating event 
was the transition between Magento 1 and 2. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't think it was just one of those on its own. I think without... With a with Roy Rubin and um, and the other founders here, you all and you know others, I think could they have been able to navigate that better? Possibly. But then you take the other side that if um, if the original could there have been a good leader within a bigger company? It's harder to see that how that yeah. works because once a company is acquired, it tends to over time, it tends to look like the company that acquired it, which really? is usually yeah. slower and less innovative generally. And I think you've seen that, you know, with, with Demandware over time, there's hardly anyone within Salesforce that used to work at Demandware anymore. Um, you know, not to say that it's not fine for a lot of use cases, but it's, I don't think they're as innovative as they used to be. Um, and, and so I just think that type of neglect happens if if you're not continually renewing the platform uh and recognizing that every five years the market like it really it really changes (laughs) yeah yeah well then yeah and i I suppose that that speaks to some of the you know especially designer community sort of um feedback and you know how vocal they were of figma being brought into the adobe mm-hmm. family and 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 those those use cases you talk about um i want to round out final question um i'm not a gambler i don't know if you are let's assume that we are <laughs> let's assume that we are if you were to play some bets who would be the dominant platform in three years time do you think there is a new player that we don't know about right now i mean look dominant you know we're requires that they be large it's five five you know three years time that's not much time and 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 so like things change quickly but they also change slowly uh in in some sense and that re-platform cycles are i think i think interesting i i I tend to look at trends and momentum and I, i i do quite agree with your point that if you look at which company seems to have more momentum than others, I, I agree that Shopify and commerce tools does. I do think that there are some segments where big commerce does have momentum. And I think that I think small to mid market B2B is one of those markets. Someone a B2B first manufacturer or distributor who wants something off the shelf. And I think the B2B market, there are so many solutions out there that are completely customizable, but a lot of people, especially at that level of B2B commerce, they don't need something like so customizable. They just want something off the shelf um, because they're doing so much in their ERP anyway, you know, right? So they're just trying to do like slightly less in their ERP. That's, 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 that's their vision for B2B commerce. Would your answer change if we changed the time frame to 10 years? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think it, it is entirely possible that we haven't seen the platform that could be a dominant player in 10 years. That, that's just the way the market works. Um, I, I think... Um, I don't... Look, it, right now, it's very hard to see Shopify declining. 
And the reason is because there are not many people attacking it at its core, which is sort of the entrepreneur and SMB space. Like, who, wh- where else are people going? And you just, you just can't come up with any names. Um, I, I think Europe is a different market, and almost every country in Europe is a little bit different market. But I think in North America, if we're going to kind of leave it there, um, you know, they're they're attacking in plus, they're attacking in POS, they're attacking in enterprise, and I think they're not having to defend a lot. And I think anytime you study a company, that's that's something to pay attention to because I think almost every other platform is does both because like even if you look at um you know some other players in the enterprise space there's there's always still sap there's always still salesforce i mean like they're still (laughs) they're still in those markets but they're not in the shopify core markets i mean uh, as you said like salesforce would tell you like yeah they're in shopify you know they've come down to shopify's you know setup but i think the net flow of merchants in the direct-to-consumer space, I think it's still flowing out of Salesforce on a absolute numbers basis, even if some flow back and you know back and forth. I think again, again, I think Europe is a little bit different. I think Shopify isn't as penetrated there, and I think actually Magento is still pretty strong, especially in certain countries there. Yeah, yeah, and um, and you know, platforms like Shopware still have okay market share in, in places like Germany and stuff like that. Well, right. look, with 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 all my guests, I, I do suggest that they come back on and I will offer a 10-year reunion <laughs> with you for us to dissect the answer. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to look back at this in 10 years. And uh, yeah, we can, we can uh, review uh, our analysis. I think that's a good way to end the pod. Rick, thank you so much for joining me. All right. Thanks so much, Tim. I appreciate it. There you go, folks. Thanks for joining us. If you like what you've heard, please like, download, subscribe, and tell all your mates to do the same. Before we go, a quick word from our friends at OmniSend, the ROI-focused email and SMS marketing platform for online merchants. Go check them out at getomnisend.com slash your basket is empty. We'll see you next time.